Chapter 5, Part 1 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Maxwell. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart, by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 5, Part 1. At the time appointed, the queen was ready. She had suffered so much at Edinburgh that she had left it without any regret. Besides, whether to spare her the humiliations of the day before, or to conceal her departure from any partisans who might remain to her, a litter had been made ready. Mary got into it without any resistance, and after two hours' journey, she reached Duddington. There, a little vessel was waiting for her, which set sail directly she was on board, and next day at dawn, she disembarked on the other side of the Firth of Forth in the county of Fife. Mary halted at Rosescythe Castle only just long enough to breakfast, and immediately recommenced her journey, for Lord Lindsay had declared that he had wished to reach his destination that same evening. Indeed, as the sun was setting, Mary perceived gilded with his last rays the high towers of Loch Leven Castle, situated on an islet in the midst of the lake of the same name. No doubt the royal prisoner was already expected at Loch Leven Castle, for on reaching the lakeside, Lord Lindsay's equerry unfurled his banner, which till then had remained in its case, and waved it from right to left, while his master blew a little hunting bugle which he wore hanging from his neck. A boat immediately put off from the island and came towards the arrivals, set in motion by four vigorous oarsmen, who had soon propelled it across the space which separated it from the bank. Mary silently got into it, and sat down at the stern, while Lord Lindsay and his equerry stood up before her, and as her guide did not seem any more inclined to speak than she herself to respond, she had plenty of time to examine her future dwelling. The castle, or rather the fortress of Loch Leven, already somewhat gloomy in its situation and architecture, borrowed fresh mournfulness still from the hour at which it appeared to the queen's gaze. It was, so far as she could judge amid the mists rising from the lake, one of those massive structures of the twelfth century which seem, so fast shut up are they, the stone armor of a giant. As she drew near, Mary began to make out the contours of two great round towers, which flanked the corners and gave it the severe character of a state prison. A clump of ancient trees enclosed by a high wall, or rather a rampart, rose at its north front and seemed vegetation in stone, and completed the general effect of this gloomy abode, while, on the contrary, the eye wandering from it and passing from islands to islands lost itself in the west, in the north, and in the south, in the vast plain of Kinross, or stopped southwards at the jagged summits of Ben Lomond, whose farthest slopes died down the shores of the lake. Three persons awaited Mary at the castle door, Lady Douglas, William Douglas, her son, and a child of twelve who was called Little Douglas, and who was neither a son nor a brother of the inhabitants of the castle, but merely a distant relative. As one can imagine, there were few compliments between Mary and her hosts, and the queen conducted to her apartment, which was on the first floor, and of which the windows overlooked the lake, was soon left with Mary Seaton, the only one of the four Marys who had been allowed to accompany her. However, rapid as the interview had been, and short and measured the words exchanged between the prisoner and her jailers, Mary had had time, 
together with what she knew of them beforehand, to construct for herself a fairly accurate idea of the new personages who had just mingled in her history. Lady Lochleven, wife of Lord William Douglas, of whom we have already said a few words at the beginning of this history, was a woman of from fifty-five to sixty years of age, who had been handsome enough in her youth to fix upon herself the glances of King James V, and who had had a son by him, who was this same Murray whom we have already seen figuring so often in Mary's history, and who, although his birth was illegitimate, had always been treated as a brother by the Queen. Lady Lochleven had had a momentary hope, so great was the King's love for her, of becoming his wife, which upon the whole was possible, the family of Mar, from which she was descended, being the equal of the most ancient and the noblest families in Scotland. But, unluckily, perhaps slanderously, certain talk which was circulating among the young noblemen of the time came to James's ears. It was said that together with her royal lover, the beautiful favorite had another, whom she had chosen, no doubt from curiosity, from the very lowest class. It was added that this Porterfeld, or Porterfield, was the real father of the child who had already received the name of James Stuart, and whom the king was educating as his son at the monastery of St. Andrews. These rumors, well-founded or not, had therefore stopped James V at the moment when, in gratitude to her who had given him a son, he was on the point of raising her to the rank of queen, so that instead of marrying her himself, he had invited her to choose among the nobles at court, and as she was very handsome, and the king's favor went with the marriage, this choice, which fell on Lord William Douglas of Lochleven, did not meet with any resistance on his part. However, in spite of this direct protection that James V preserved for her all his life, Lady Douglas could never forget that she had fingered higher fortune. Moreover, she had a hatred for the one who, according to herself, had usurped her place, and poor Mary had naturally inherited the profound animosity that Lady Douglas bore to her mother, which had already come to light in the few words that the two women had exchanged. Besides, in aging, whether from repentance for her errors or from hypocrisy, Lady Douglas had become a prude and a puritan, so that at this time she united with the natural acrimony of her character all the stiffness of the new religion she had adopted. William Douglas, who was the eldest son of Lord Loglevin, on his mother's side half-brother of Murray, was a man of from 35 to 36 years of age, athletic, with hard and strongly pronounced features, red-haired like all the younger branch, and who had inherited that paternal hatred that for a century the Douglases cherished against the Stuarts, and which was shown by so many plots, rebellions, and assassinations. According as fortune had favored or deserted Murray, William Douglas had seen the rays of the fraternal star draw near or away from him, he had then felt that he was living in another's life, and was devoted, body and soul, to him who was his cause of greatness or of abasement. Mary's fall, which must necessarily raise Mary, was thus a source of joy for him, and the Confederate lords could not have chosen better than in confiding the safekeeping of their prisoner to the instinctive spite of Lady Douglas and to the intelligent hatred of her son. As to little Douglas, he was, as we have said, a child of twelve, for some months an orphan, whom the Loch Levens had taken charge of, and whom they made by the bread they had given him by all sorts of harshness. The result was that the child, proud and spiteful as a Douglas, and knowing, although his fortune was inferior, 
that his birth was equal to his proud relatives, had little by little changed his early gratitude into lasting and profound hatred, for one used to say that among the Douglases there was an age for loving, but that there was none for hating. It results that, feeling his weakness and isolation, the child was self-contained with strength beyond his years, and, humble and submissive in appearance, only awaited the moment when, a grown-up young man, he could leave Lochleven and perhaps avenge himself for the proud protection of those who dwelt there. But the feelings that we have just expressed did not extend to all members of the family. As much as from the bottom of his heart the little Douglas detested William and his mother, so much he loved George, the second of Lady Lochleven's sons, of whom we have not yet spoken, because, being away from the castle when the Queen arrived, we have not yet found an opportunity to present him to our readers. George, who at this time might have been about twenty-five or twenty-six years old, was the second son of Lord Lochleven, but by a singular chance that his mother's adventurous youth had caused Sir William to interpret amiss, this second son had none of the characteristic features of the Douglas's full cheeks, high color, large ears, and red hair. The result was that poor George, who on the contrary had been given by nature pale cheeks, dark blue eyes, and black hair, had been, since coming into the world, an object of indifference to his father and of dislike to his elder brother. As to his mother, whether she were indeed in good faith surprised like Lord Douglas at the, this difference in race, whether she knew the cause and inwardly reproached herself, George had never been, ostensibly at least, the object of a very lively maternal affection. So the young man, followed from his childhood by a fatality he could not explain, had sprung up like a wild shrub, full of sap and strength, but uncultivated and solitary. Besides, from the time when he was fifteen, one was accustomed to his motiveless absences, which the indifference that everyone bore him made moreover perfectly explicable. From time to time, however, he was seen to reappear at the castle, like those migratory birds which always return to the same place, but only stay a moment, then take their way again, without one's knowing towards what spot in the world they are directing their flight. An instinct of misfortune in common had drawn little Douglas to George. George, seeing the child ill-treated by everyone, had conceived an affection for him, and little Douglas, feeling himself loved amid the atmosphere of indifference around him, turned with open arms and heart to George. It resulted from this mutual liking that one day, when the child had committed I do not know what fault, and that William Douglas raised the whip he beat his dogs with to strike him, that George, who was sitting on a stone, sad and thoughtful, had immediately sprung up, snatched the whip from his brother's hands, and thrown it far from him. At this insult, William had drawn his sword, and George his, so that these two brothers, who had hated one another for twenty years like two enemies, were going to cut one another's throats, when little Douglas, who had picked up the whip, coming back and kneeling before William, offered him the ignominious weapon, saying, Strike, cousin, I have deserved it. This behavior of the child had caused some minutes' reflection to the two young men, who, terrified at the crime they were about to commit, had returned their swords to their scabbards and had each gone away in silence. Since this incident, the friendship in George and little Douglas had acquired new strength, and on the child's side it had become veneration. We dwell upon all these details somewhat at length, perhaps, but no doubt our readers will pardon us when they see the use to be made of them.
This is the family, less George, who, as we have said, was absent at the time of her arrival, into the midst of which the queen had fallen, passing in a moment from the summit of power to the position of a prisoner, for from the day following her arrival Mary saw that it was by such a title she was an inmate of Lochleven Castle. In fact, Lady Douglas presented herself before her as soon as it was morning, and with an embarrassment and dislike ill-disguised beneath an appearance of respectful indifference, invited Mary to follow her and take stock of the several parts of the fortress which had been chosen beforehand for her private use. She then made her go through three rooms, of which one was to serve as her bedroom, the second as sitting-room, and the third as antechamber. Afterwards, leading the way down a spiral staircase, which looked into the great hall of the castle, its only outlet, she had crossed this hall and had taken Mary into the garden, whose trees the queen had seen topping the high walls on her arrival. It was a little square of ground, forming a flower bed in the midst of which was an artificial fountain. It was entered by a very low door, repeated in the opposite wall. This second door looked on to the lake, and, like all the castle doors, whose keys, however, never left the belt or the pillow of William Douglas, it was guarded night and day by a sentinel. This was now the whole domain of her who had possessed the palaces, the plains, and the mountains of an entire kingdom. Mary, on returning to her room, found breakfast ready, and William Douglas standing near the table he was going to fulfill about the queen the duties of carver and taster. In spite of their hatred for Mary, the Douglases would have considered it an eternal blemish on their honor if any accident should have befallen the queen while she was dwelling in their castle, and it was in order that the queen herself should not entertain any fear in this respect that William Douglas, in his quality of lord of the manor, had not only desired to carve before the queen, but even to taste first in her presence all the dishes served to her, as well as the water and the several wines to be brought her. This precaution saddened Mary more than it reassured her, for she understood that while she stayed in the castle, this ceremony would prevent any intimacy at table. However, it proceeded from too noble an intention for her to impute it as a crime to her hosts. She resigned herself then to this company, insupportable as it was to her, only from that day forward she so cut short her meals that all the time she was at Loch Leven, her longest dinners barely lasted more than a quarter of an hour. Two days after her arrival, Mary, on sitting down to table for breakfast, found on her plate a letter addressed to her, which had been put there by William Douglas. Mary recognized Murray's handwriting, and her first feeling was one of joy, for if a ray of hope remained to her, it came from her brother, to whom she had always been perfectly kind, whom from prior of St. Andrews she had made an earl in bestowing on him the splendid estates which formed part of the old earldom of Murray, and to whom, which was of more importance, she had since pardoned, or pretended to pardon, the part he had taken in Rizzio's assassination. Her astonishment was great, then, when, having opened the letter, she found in it bitter reproaches for her conduct, an exhortation to do penance, and an assurance several times repeated that she should never leave her prison. He ended his letter in announcing to her that, in spite of his distaste for public affairs, he had been obliged to accept the regency, which he had done less for his country than for his sister, seeing it, that it was the sole means he had of standing in the way of the ignominious trial to which the nobles wished to bring her, as author, or at least as a chief accomplice, of Darnley's death. This imprisonment was then clearly a great good fortune for her, and she ought to thank heaven for it, 
as an alleviation of the fate awaiting her if he had not interceded for her. This letter was a lightning stroke for Mary. Only, as she did not wish to give her enemies the delight of seeing her suffer, she contained her grief, and, turning to William Douglas, My lord, she said, this letter contains news that you doubtless know already, for although we are not children by the same mother, he who writes to me is related to us in the same degree, and will not have desired to write to his sister without writing to his brother at the same time. Besides, as a good son, he will have desired to acquaint his mother with the unlooked-for greatness that has befallen him. Yes, madam, replied William, we know since yesterday that, for the welfare of Scotland, my brother has been named regent, and as he is a son as respectful to his mother as he is devoted to his country, we hope that he will repair the evil that for five years favorites of every sort and kind have done to both. It is like a good son, and at the same time like a courteous host, to go back no farther into the history of Scotland, replied Mary Stuart, and not to make the daughter blush for the father's errors. For I have heard say that the evil which your lordship laments was prior to the time to which you assign it, and that King James V also had formerly favorites, both male and female. It is true that they add that the ones as ill rewarded his friendship as the, as the others his love. In this, if you are ignorant of it, my lord, you can be instructed, if he is still living, by a certain Porterfeld, or Porterfield, I don't know which, understanding these names of the lower classes too ill to retain and pronounce them, but about which, in my stead, your noble mother could give you information. With these words, Mary Stuart rose, and, leaving William Douglas crimson with rage, she returned into her bedroom and bolted the door behind her. End of chapter 5 Part 1